All right. Uh, welcome back. This is the Taurus Chaim podcast, where we weekly have a Torah discussion about the weekly Torah portion. Um, and I just want to reiterate something we've discussed a couple times, um, but the format for this is somewhat intentional. Um, the idea that you and I are talking about it and when you, you know, say discussing you. <laughs> discussing it, you being my wife, Miriam Pascal Cohen. Um, it's intentional in the sense that, you know, David HaMelech, King David, tells us in Tehillim that Lule Torascha Shashuai, if not for your Torah being Shashuai, perhaps is best translated as my plaything, the thing that I am involved in. In fact, mm-hmm. uh, the word Shashua, Shah, in Hebrew, the Hebrew root Shah means to turn. So, for example, by Cain and Hevel, when they, Cain and Hevel, brought their sacrifices, so the Torah tells us that Val Cain, Val Minchaso, Lo Shah, that Hashem did not turn to Cain and his offering. Shashua actually means, is a double, it's a repetitive um, word. It repeats the root twice. We have a couple words like that in Hebrew, for example, Galgal, right? Uh, Galgal in Hebrew means a circle or a wheel, right? right? Um, Shashua means to turn, turn. You know, it's kind of similar to the word Galgal, meaning if you turn and then you turn again, you've turned 180 degrees. Um, sorry, rather uh, 360 degrees. If you turn, you've turned 180 degrees. If you turn again, okay. you're, you're back where you started at 360 degrees. And the idea is that it's something that is self-contained. Okay. When we're playing, right, everything else in the world kind of falls away. And we're just <laughs> sort of focused on whatever it is that we're playing with. <laughs> if it's Toon Blast, right, whatever, whatever the play is. Um, that, and that's kind of, you see this a lot with kids, you know, how right. they can get totally so engrossed in their, game. in their games, right? With, with, with adults, it's a lot harder for us to kind of detach right. from, from all of the, the troubles of adulthood. <laughs> um, but so David HaMelech says, If not for your Torah being the thing that I am able to find this sense of play in, then I would have been lost in my pain. You know? And there's, there's a certain reality to that in the sense of, in as much as, yes, we do relate what we're talking about to world events, etc., etc., it is a little bit of an escape. Um, it's it's a moment in time or a space in time, a I, bubble. I actually just in posted time, on perhaps. Instagram that this is my favorite part of the week. <laughs> um, a bubble in time, perhaps. And it goes by very quickly. Um, Maybe not for you, but for me and all the listeners. <laughs> okay. Uh, and and it gives us an opportunity to kind of block out a little bit some of the craziness that Our is world. is occurring in the world. <clears throat> so, and and so, in that sense, it's very difficult. Solitary play is very lonely. Um, <laughs> it's solitary. Right? Right. It's so much more fun when you're playing together with someone else. And to a certain degree, this is what Chazal, our sages, mean when they talk about a chavrusa, a study partner, is that in order for Torah to be alive, it requires a back and forth. A back and forth. Uh-huh. Very interesting. Or you might say that Torah exists in the context 
of relationships, mm-hmm. right? Um, so whether it's the relationship between two people or relationship between us and God, Torah exists in that form. Before you start, um, for any new listeners, do you want to just explain Torah Chaim? Sure. So the idea of Torah Chaim is the idea that we understand Torah to be the literal translation of the word instructions, and specifically instructions for living. Torah Chaim, instructions for life. Um, and that is that the creator of life has given us the instructions for how to best use uh, th- that life. You know, it's interesting. A lot of people, you know, you get a new iPhone, right? And it comes with that, you know, that instruction thing. Most of us... Of people, no, there's two kinds of people in okay. the world. <laughs> there's two kinds of people in the world, those who know math and those... Sorry, there's three kinds of people in the world, those who know math and those who don't. Um yeah, so there's two kinds of people. There's the people who throw the instruction book That's away, me. and there's the people who actually read the instructions. That's you. But here's the thing. <laughs> One great benefit of reading the instructions is you get to find out cool tips and tricks that you wouldn't have known necessarily otherwise. Now, oftentimes, over the course of using the item, you figure, it figure out. those out. But imagine if you knew them all right from the very beginning, right? Are Let you me saying give you, you have all kinds of iPhone tips and tricks that you that you know that I don't? No. Um, <laughs> what I am saying is this, you know, Adam, that first primal man, is given the choice of the Eitz HaChayim, the tree of life, or the Eitz HaDas, or the tree of knowledge. Without getting into the detail of what exactly is going on in that story over there, one approach to that issue is that really he's presented with the following challenge. You can either study the Eitz HaChayim, which we know is Torah, right? We refer to Torah as Eitz Chaim He. It is the tree of life in the sense that Torah gives us the instructions for how to deal with life. Or you can be like every teenager out there who tells their parents, I don't need to go to school. I don't need instructions. I don't need you to tell me your life experience. I'm just going to go out and experience it for myself. And the truth is the word Da'as really means experience. It's knowledge that's gained through experience, mm-hmm. right? So as one of, as I think it was Rebelli Meir Blach put it, he said, Da'as is, you know, when you see a sign that says wet paint, right? And then you just, you have to touch it just that, to make sure, right? When you've touched it and you felt that it's wet, that's Da'as. Right. That's the level of knowledge of experience. It's a mm-hmm. di- totally different knowledge than perhaps intellectual, pure intellectual knowledge. And so Adam, like every good teenager, decides he wants to do it on his own. But we have the opportunity now to study the Yitzhakayim, to study Torah, our instructions for living. And as we discussed last week, it's not only that Torah gives us instructions for life, but it is a reflexive process in the sense that our life is meant to be incorporated into our Torah study, and we should be able to find appropriate insights for what's going in our life, what's happening in our life, and how to properly, the proper perspective on those issues in the weekly Torah portion. So that's a very long-winded way of saying what Torah time is. Let us begin this week's Parsha. And this week's Parsha is Parsha's Vayera. Today is October 30th. Uh, We have not yet reached uh, All Hallows' Eve, that would be tomorrow. Um, maybe we'll talk about that a little later. 
um, how, really? how that, yes, um, how that relates in terms of Judaism. Without, there is some discussion in the halachic sources as to whether Halloween is considered avodazara. Is it considered a form of idolatry? Is it pagan in origin, which actually it seems to be pretty clear, at least originally it is pagan, um, but it has it retained enough of that pagan influence that um, to still consider it it's still there. considered avodazara. It's still considered a form of idol practice, um, and therefore Jews should not get involved in it. Um, what's interesting is that some of the more Hasidic sources um, point they compare Halloween, Hallow's Eve, to um, Xmas. Okay. Right? And for those of you who are familiar with some amount of Yiddish, you may be familiar with Nittelnacht, right. Right? which is the Yiddish term for the night of Christmas Eve. Um, and there are actually customs within the Hasidic community, uh, particularly elsewhere as well, that they would not study Torah on Nittelnacht um, because there was this idea that the, there was too much, the forces of impurity in the world were too strong. Um, and there are some who actually interestingly compare the two. And I think, um, I think it is not accidental um, that tonight leading into uh, All Hallows Eve is also the Hebrew anniversary of Kristallnacht um, and a night in Jewish history that was definitely filled with evil spirits, even though originally Halloween had nothing to do with evil. It was all Saints Eve. And it was really when, you know, the, the souls of the saints were, were being, were wandering the world. But um, that being said, I am not of the opinion that you do not study Torah on Nittelnacht okay. nor on the night of, of Halloween. Uh, in fact, I, I believe quite the opposite. I believe that Torah for us is our light in the darkness um, and it is what we go to as we just mentioned before as avadati bani if not for torah we would be lost in the pain of the difficulties of our life vayira elav hashem and so god appeared to avram just to give ourselves some context the last week's torah portion ended with avraham giving himself and the members of his family, a bris milah, a, a circumcision. Um, and the way Rashi understands the beginning of this week's parsha is we're actually three days later, and we have a tradition in Judaism that on the third day, um, <clears throat> on the third day after any sort of major event, medically, things tend to be the most serious. So the third day of a person's sickness is when they're considered the most sick. The third day after a surgery is when it's the most painful. And so that was the time when Hashem, when God came to visit the sick. Um, and I want to focus on that just for a minute because I want to talk a little bit, uh, I can't remember if we discussed this, about the concept of bris milah and what the concept of bris milah really means. I know we talked about it a little bit at the Shabbos table this past right. week, but the Ramban, Nachmanides, in his commentary on the Torah points out that the word bris actually comes from the Hebrew word, word or root, bri'ah, 
which means to create. And the idea of a covenant, bris, is what a psychologist like to refer to as co-creation. In other words, um, many things happen to us in life, um, and we ask whose fault it is. This is the <laughs> psychological aspect of it, right? And the answer is, it is a co-creation. In other words, there's no one particular cause. There may be multiple people involved in a particular situation. It's my parents' fault. It's, you know, my siblings' fault, etc., etc. But it's also my fault. Um, okay. And I, being that I am me, need to take responsibility for my part in the co-creation of this situation. Um, that's kind of the, the psychological concept. In terms of Torah, when we talk about a bris, what we mean is that two parties are co-creating something. Right? So, for example, we talk about the Brit Nisuin, the covenant of marriage. And what we mean in the covenant of marriage is that the relationship that is created between a husband and a wife is a nature or a situation, an environment, a relationship that is not just the combination of two individuals and two individual experiences, but is a co-creation that comes out of mm -hmm. those two people. And so too, um, in terms of the brismila, the covenant of, of circumcision, is the idea that we, as as God's messengers, so to speak, to this world, and we talked about this a little bit um, back in Parshas Beratius, uh, the idea of how we as the Jewish people have taken over Adam's responsibility, how Adam, that original man or human, represented humankind as a whole, and we take over that um, experience. And what's fascinating is the uh, the Navi in Yehoshua actually refers to Avraham as Ha'adam Hagadol Ba'anakim, the great gigantic man. Okay. Um, so he's actually referred to with the word Adam. And part of the idea that we're being told there is that Avraham takes over Adam's role in creation. And incidentally, this is what is meant when it says that, for example, that Adam was created mahul, he was created circumcised. Meaning, in terms of Adam's experience, it wasn't like he lived a life and then in middle of that life, he then joined into a relationship with God, but rather his very initiation into life was in the context of that relationship, right? Okay. And that's, therefore he is, so to speak, born circumcised. Right. Whereas Avraham has a life before and a life after. And actually, what I would like to examine a little bit as we go along is kind of the Avram before and the Avram after, or we might say the Avram without a hay before and the, and the Avraham with the hay that gets added to his name after. And of course, this is going to be represented in Avraham's two children. Because Avraham has one child that is born before circumcision, Yishmael. Yishmael right. is born before Avraham is circumcised. In fact, at the same time that Avraham is circumcised, Yishmael, at age 13, is it's also circumcised. circumcised. Right. Whereas Yitzchak is specifically born after Avraham's circumcision. And the Zohar actually speaks this out explicitly, 
that that is the difference or a a significant difference between Yishmael and Yitzchak is Avraham before are we coming from Avraham before Brismila or are we coming from Avraham after Brismila? What Brismila means is that we are co-creators with God, which means the following. It would make absolutely no sense for God to pop in for a visit to Avraham before Brismila. Because before Brismila, Avraham is merely one of God's creatures, so to speak. Okay. Right? There isn't a unique personal relationship to the same degree before the Brismila. Whereas after the Brismila, and incidentally, this is why Rashi makes the comment that he makes, Rashi notes, usually when Hashem appears, he says something. Right? Right. Isn't that what prophecy is? Right. So what what is God saying here? And Rashi's amazing answer is he's not saying anything. He's just coming to pop in for a visit, to say hi, so to speak, right? To see how Abraham is doing. And that's specifically in reaction to Abraham's entering into this covenant with him. Because now Abraham is a partner. And if you have a business partner, right? And something happens to that business partner, you check in on them. Right. Right? So to speak. Right? So that is what's happening over here. Vayera ilav Hashem. Hashem appeared to him be'elone mamre in the plains of Mamre. Vahu yoshev pesach ha'ohel kichom hayom. And he was sitting at the entrance of the day, of the, of the sorry, of the uh, tent, uh, at the heat of the day. And so the, the simple understanding of kichom hayom is it means at high noon, right? Okay. When the day is hottest, right? So okay, he's, my least favorite part of the day. He's sitting there at the entrance of his tent at noontime. However, we know that Rashi actually makes mention of the Medrash that there was actually a unique, unique. It was a uniquely hot day, right? Um, and I actually saw that one of the uh, commentaries on Rashi, I believe it's the Divrei David, the Taz, explains that the reason why Rashi, based on the Medrash, says that is because Hayom means the day, a specific day. It could have just said Kichom Yom, at the heat of day. Right. When it says at the heat of the day, it must be we're referring to a specific day. Well, there's only one day in Jewish history that is referred to as a hot day. And that is the Navi tells us that in the future, God is going to take the sun, so to speak, out of its sheath and it will shine on the earth. And those who are meant to be healed by it will be healed by it. And those who are not, not, not our discussion for right now, maybe when we get to Parshas Vayishlach, we can talk about it in in the context of of the uh... mitzvah. (laughs) <laughs> in the mitzvah of, Gid, of Gid Hanasheh. <laughs> but since there is a day that is referred to as specifically hot, therefore Rashi is saying this day in some day, some way was analogous to that day, that mm-hmm. God, so to speak, took the sun out of its sheath and it was uniquely hot, right? Okay. Um, so the day is blisteringly hot, right? I remember someone once joking that they went to, um, they went to Arizona Mm-hmm. Um, in the middle of the summer, they were there for a Shabbos, and it was 120 degrees. 
And they said to the community that they were there with, I believe they were brought out to speak. They said, now I understand what people mean when they give other people a blessing until 120. <laughs> right. Um, so it's 120 degrees outside, right? right? Anyone who has ever experienced heat like that knows it takes just a couple seconds of being outside for you to be completely overwhelmed. Right. Right. Okay. I mean, it, it doesn't take very long. Yeah, I haven't experienced it, but I'll I'll take your word for it. Right. Well, <laughs> you know, Southern California, you occasionally get to experience uh, okay. heat like that. All right. So now it's, but at least it's a dry heat. Um, okay. <laughs> um, so he's sitting at the tent. The day is hot. Why is it so hot? So as Rashi brings the midrash, that Hashem wanted Avraham to relax. And he knows that if there are passers-by, Avraham, being the man of chesed, the man of, well, translated as kindness for now, that he is, will want to take care of them. And so, therefore, he makes it a uniquely hot day. Right. Uh, um, but when we take a look at the next pasuk and, and we really see it actually in the first pasuk what's he doing sitting there at the entrance of the tent he's looking for guests and he picks up his eyes and he sees there are three men standing there and he sees them now that's interesting that's kind of repetitive right mm -hmm. it said he picked up his eyes and saw and then it says and, and he, he saw, saw. We'll explain that in just a moment. Uh oh, how he ran to them from the opening of the tent. And he bowed down to them. So as the way that Rashi explains it is that God saw how much pain Abraham was in. The fact that he didn't have guests to take care of. Right. And so, therefore, he sent him these three men who, at least according to one opinion, are actually angels in a bodily disguise, right? So that Avraham would have somebody to take care of. We'll talk about the Vayar Vayar in just a moment. Okay. I do want to point something out, though. You know, in Hebrew, we have two very different words. We have chesed and rachamim. Chesed is usually translated as kindness. And rachamim is usually translated as mercy. Right. What's the difference between those two concepts? You know, in it's not as common here, though, I, probably because I don't go to uh, the same 7-Elevens as often here as I do in L.A. But oftentimes, <laughs> for example, in, <laughs> in, uh, oftentimes, for example, in L.A., outside of 7-Elevens, you will have homeless people who are panhandling. Right. right? Um, and to be frank, I have a very difficult time walking by them and not giving them something. Right. Because it hurts. Right. It, it is somewhat painful to see someone else in a desperate situation. Right. If I were to go ahead and give them something, right, that would potentially be an act not of chesed, but of rachamim. Right. That's compassion. I see someone else in pain. And I want to ameliorate their pain. I want to take their pain away. Okay. Right? Now, 
that's without getting into the whole question of whether it's a good thing to do or not a good thing to do. Just talking about the emotion, right? right? On the other hand, chesed, Abraham doesn't even have anybody there to do chesed for. And he has the desire to do chesed. That's not ameliorating someone's pain. There's no pain here. I mean, other than his own. His own for not having chesed. But he's not, right? That's a key difference between chesed and rachamim. And the reason that this is so important is because we have to understand that we as Jews are, so to speak, obligated to have both of these. So number one, if we see someone in pain, we are meant to feel their pain and feel rachamim, feel a sense of compassion. But more than just that, chesed is the idea of creating kindness, of creating life, of, so to speak, creating a need. Think about God. Right. We say, olam chesed yibana. This world was created as an act of chesed. There was no one there that needed his help, so to speak. Right. There was nothing. Right. Right. He created chesed. He created a world that is then the recipient of that kindness. And Abraham specifically, in his relationship with God as a co-creator, has to be the Isha Chesed. He has to be the person of Chesed. Because that's what God is all about. That's what creation is all about. So Avram, in order to be a co-creator, has to be the man of Chesed. Which means he's the kind of guy that even though there's no one there, it's not like, oh, the poor you know, person, I want to help them. There's no one there. He still has a desire to give. Or as our sages put it, more than the calf, Yosef Meha, Meha Egel, Rotsa Linok, more than the calf wants to nurse, Hapara Rotsa Shetanik, the cow wants that she nurse her child, right? In other words, as a parent, it's not only, we don't only want to feed our baby when they're crying, right? Or change their diaper when they're dirty, right? We're not just there to, right? We're not just here to take away their pain, right? Right. We want to give, right? right? We want them, to, we want to give to them. And that is one of the messages that is coming That actually here. really helps me understand the difference between chesed and rachamim very well. Right. Like rachamim, you're there to stop the baby from being in pain, but chesed, you're there to just make them make a beautiful life for them. Right. right. Wow. Okay. Um, okay. Um, let's talk about vayar vayar, that double, okay. that repeated expression. You're excited. <laughs> it, well, it gives a chance to discuss, I don't know, maybe it's a little controversial, but uh, quite mm-hmm. a fascinating Idea. Controversy will help and, us the podcast. So, and fair warning here: I'm going to say a shot here that I have not seen anywhere. It is only how I understand it, and okay. maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong. I don't know. Okay, I so you. Rashi bothered by this question of vayar vayar. Why does it say right. he saw twice? Answers: Well, there's two types of seeing. You can physically see something, and you can see something like we say, oh. I see. Oh, I see. 
So the first time was just Avram physically seeing something. The second time was Avram understood something. And what he understood, Rashi explains, is he saw that they were essentially waiting there for him trying to figure out should the... Is he going to come to them? Is he not going to come to them? Should they come towards him? Et cetera, et cetera. However, you know, there's a very fascinating difference of opinion between Ramban, Nachmanides, and Nachmanides and uh, Rambam, Maimonides. Maimonides in Mor Nebuchim, and for a little bit of context, you have to understand that Rambam was the... This is going to come out wrong, but oh well. The quintessential rationalist. Okay? Okay. Rambam had a very, very non-mystical approach to understanding Torah. And Rambam in Mordevuchim essentially understands that any time someone is seeing an angel, it must be prophecy. Because angels are not physical beings. Interesting. Okay. And so therefore they must be experiencing prophecy. Okay. And that's how they're seeing an angel. In the same way that, so to speak, someone can see God in, in prophecy. God is not a physical being, but you can see him in prophecy. Right? So actually Ramam understands this entire story with the three people that Avraham sees, including all the way through potentially through the Sidon story as all being prophetic and not something that actually necessarily physically happened. Ramban Nachmanides is irate about that. Okay. Because he says, what do you mean? Don't we have a bracha? We have a blessing that is mentioned in the Gemara in Masechus Brachos over seeing the pillar of salt that was Lot's, right? That was Lot's wife. Well, if this whole thing is not real, if it's all in Abraham's head, why in the world are we making a bracha? Okay. Right? So Ramban is very bothered. But that's Rambam's approach. Okay. I want to suggest that perhaps according to Rambam, Rambam sees not only because Abraham is seeing angels, but for another reason he sees this as prophecy, and that is the repetition of the term vayar. You know, there's a fascinating phenomenon that we never see ourselves in our dreams. Like you never look in a mirror? You, ne- you're never, you never experience your dream as a third-person perspective. Uh-huh. You always experience your dream from a first-person perspective. Okay. Vayar, the second time, is, maybe, this is my own, that Avraham saw himself. Vayisa ina vayar. He picks up, his, picks up his eyes and he has a vision. And in that vision, he sees himself running towards the angels. The only way Avraham could possibly be seeing himself is if he's having nevuah, is if he's having prophecy. Otherwise, we never see ourselves. Right? And so Avraham is, so to speak, experiencing a third-person perspective of and his own his life. Nevuah. And that's his nevuah. Maybe that would be one way to interpret Vayar Vayar. I don't know. I like it a lot. I, I, I think it's beautiful. But again, I have not seen it in any sources. So take it as you will. So Abraham runs towards them. Vayomar. And in the next verse, he says, now the next word, there's a difference of opinion, whether it's Adonai. But there's a difference of opinion, whether it is the 
the name that we use for God, and he's talking to God, or the word Adonai also means my master. Right. And it could be used talking to another human being. Right. So who is Avraham talking to here? Is, is Avraham talking to God? Wait, sorry. Or is, is he it, talking to them? Is yes. it, isn't it Adoni ah. when it's talking to a person? Not necessarily. Okay. Though, and this is one of the factors in trying to understand this particular verse, it is in the singular. Adonai, it's hard to hear the difference here, but okay. Adonai, if there was a, a patach, an ah sound underneath the nun, would be my master's. Adonai, right, with, with a, a kamat, the ah sound underneath. The what sound? Ah. I'm sorry, the what sound? That's what sound a, no. a kamat makes. Ah. No, ah. No. Okay, we're not going to get into this, okay, because this is a whole fascinating discussion. Um, of California. Diff- no, it has nothing to do well, LA versus New No, York. it has to do with Yekish versus non Yekish, the Vilnagon versus the non Vilnagon. And of course, I'm those sorry, who are I- Midaktikim and know how to pronounce words correctly, and those who are not Midaktikim and don't know how to pronounce the words correctly. So, for <laughs> example, I if I said to you Kamatz Gadol and Kamatz Katan, you would have no idea what I'm talking about, well, right? In all fairness, I didn't go to Dicta class. <laughs> Right? It's not my busyakos. Okay. Fine. That being the case, <laughs> with the kamat underneath there, it is in the singular, which would seem to imply that he's speaking to God, a single being, rather than speaking to the three people. Right? Because if he right. was speaking to the three people, it should be in the plural. Okay. Though, you could say, and as Rashi explains it, you could say he's speaking to whoever he sees as, as the leader. leader. Right, of those three. Okay. Right? And he says the following. If I have found favor in your eyes, do not pass from your servant. Don't leave. Okay. Now, here is the fascinating difference between the two interpretations. If he's speaking to the angels, this sentence makes perfect sense. Right. Right? He's speaking to the angels and he says to them, um... Don't go anywhere, right? I want to feed you. I want to feed you. And that would be the continuation in the next verse. Yukach na'ma'an take a little bit of water. On the other hand, if he's speaking to God, what is he saying? Hey, God, give me just a minute. I got to go answer the phone, right? Can you imagine that? No. <laughs> right? And Chazal, our sages, say something amazing from this. They say this teaches us that gemilos chasadim, or hachnasas orchim, as they put it, inviting one, inviting guests into one's home and taking care of them, is greater than kabbalas peneshchina than wow. speaking to God. So you actually could say, God, hold on, I have I have guests to greet. Is that amazing? Mind blowing! Oh my goodness! Right, but wait, let's try and understand that a little bit, because I think it actually gives us a very, very powerful insight from Judaism into the nature of life. Many are bothered by the fact that the Torah, Torah Shebechtav, the written Torah, makes almost no mention, for sure explicitly, of Olam Haba, of the world to come. It talks all about Olam Hazeh, about this world as we know it. Right? In fact, even the blessings that we are promised 
for doing things well, right? Or the curses that we are assured of if we don't do things well are all physical. Right? You will have enough to eat. You'll have more than enough to eat. There'll be rain in the proper time, etc., etc. right? And many are bothered by this. Whole number of different approaches. The Rishonim already, the early commentaries are bothered by this. Rambam has a whole fascinating approach into this. Not our discussion right now. I'd like to suggest a very fascinating idea that I actually uh, have seen numerous times Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory, um, the former chief rabbi of the UK, really takes this this approach because it's very much, if you know his writing, it's very much in line with what he says. And that is that Torah is not per se interested in Olam Haba. Yes, it's a reality. There is a reality of reward and punishment outside of this world and a future that is a, a perfect and everlasting future. A happily ever after, it does exist. Right. But we as Jews, are not involved in that. That's secondary. Our job in life is to take care of the here and the now. We see suffering in the world, this is the way he puts it. Our job is not to say, well, you know, they'll be rewarded for it in the world to come. Our job is to take care of the suffering that we see here in this world. And that's very much a part of Avraham we're going to see, right? When God says he wants to wipe out Sodom, what does Avraham say? No way, right? Not no way, but, right? And of Let's course, negotiate. by the way, of course, this discussion between Avraham and God about Sodom only makes sense after Brismila. After circumcision that Avraham is now a partner, they can have a discussion. In the Olam Chesed concept, they can have a discussion, right? Hey, that doesn't fit with... One second. We, I thought, you know, we're in this together, right? right? <laughs> you want to liquidate some of the assets, so to speak. So can I ask a right? question? Hold on one second. So talk to me about it. Yeah. Um, so by, by having a bris milah, Avon became God's partner mm -hmm. in, in the world and creating the world. So each of us, and I guess ladies figuratively, <laughs> Well, when actually, we, yeah. Okay, when we when when men get a like get a basmila, they also become a partner with God. Yes. So here is one way to think about it. Um, it's a little bit mystical, but it's a, at least to me, it's a it's a very clear way of of understanding the concept. You can think of Abraham at, or let's say Adam as the original Adam, there's an idea that all the souls of all human beings existed in Adam, right? Wow. In other words, Adam's mission was not personal. It was humankind, mm. right? Abraham takes over that mission, as we discussed before. Right. But that mission gets broken up into 600,000, right? That's supposedly and, and the number point. of Jewish souls that there are. We'll discuss maybe. Uh, hold on. Let's. Okay. We'll talk about how there are millions of Jews if there are six hundred thousand souls, um, right? Um, but there are six hundred thousand Jewish souls, meaning that mission gets broken, so to speak, into six hundred thousand parts, and so each we still of us have the same job, have a, a little less intensely. Yes, we we all have a component of that job. The we the way that you can have millions of Jews, even if there are six hundred thousand souls, is there are six hundred thousand root souls. And each root soul, so to speak, can be split into multiples, right? Here's a very simple way to think about that, 
right? There's an idea that a husband and wife are two halves of one whole, right? So they have mm-hmm. the same, so to speak, root soul. So we soul. have the same root soul? Right. <laughs> right? And, cool. Um, right? And, and potentially there are more people who have the same, you know, who are part of that same, so to speak, root soul. But the idea being that that mission is broken down into smaller parts, so mm-hmm. to speak. Okay. Um, I, you know, I, I'll, I'll note this because it's really very interesting, right? How this whole discussion that will happen later in the Parsha, and we're not really going to get there because it's after like three or four verses. So <laughs> we're not going to get there. But At least we're self-aware in this podcast. <laughs> There's a very interesting soliloquy that happens okay. in this week's Parsha. Uh, in the um, in the feeder world, this would be referred to as breaking the fourth wall, right? So, right in 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 theater, you have the three walls around the stage, and then right. the fourth wall is this imaginary wall between the audience and, and the performers. performers. And usually, there's the assumption that the audience can see through it, but that the performers can't, can't right? There's kind of this, not literally, but right. there's this assumption. And when a performer turns and speaks directly to the crowd, so to speak, that's called breaking the fourth wall. Okay. And in this week's Parsha, Hashem, so to speak, does something kind of like that. Because there's this so you're line. Us this happens, but you're not going to do that. <laughs> there's this line where Hashem just all of a sudden starts speaking to nobody. Vayomer Hashem. Zaka Sedom va ki Raba. And Hashem said, the outcry of Sedom and Amara is very great. And should I deal with them or not? And he's not talking to Avraham, at least not apparently talking to Avraham at the time. Okay? Which is kind of interesting. Um, but that whole conversation that he has with Avraham after following that only really makes sense, again, with Avraham post Brismila. Right. Okay. So to get back to no, you're going back. So to get back to what we were talking about, which was this idea that gemilos chasadim or hachnasas orchim, inviting guests into our house, is greater than receiving the shchina. Then, then, because one is a supernatural experience and the other is a natural experience, and we as Jews are very much focused on the natural we live a supernatural existence don't get me wrong right but and maybe natural and supernatural is is the wrong words one is an otherworldly experience and one is a this worldly experience that might be a better way of describing it and we as jews are focused on this world, this world right well i this is my own thought <laughs> i'm not as learned as you but it would also seem like if part of our mission has broken up into 600,000 pieces, but as part of our mission to, to work on, on the Olam Chesed with God, it kind of makes sense that God says, okay, I can wait while you do your Chesed. So Revolvi in Ali Shor actually seems to give an approach kind of similar to that. And what he says is there is a passive receiving of the Shekhinah where you're just experiencing it. And there's an active receiving of the Shekhinah, which is the performance of Chesed. When you are doing Chesed, you are actively receiving the Shekhinah. Wow. Right? Similar to what you're saying. You are being that being. Right? And so, therefore, that's why it takes precedence. 
Um, but I think it's in Ali Shur, but it might be in Shirei Chomesh in the Chomesh year that he gets. But okay. So Yukach Nama'at Mayim, take a little bit of water, Virachatsu Raglechem, and wash your feet. And come rest underneath the tree. <clears throat> I want to make a comment here. Okay. Um, it's kind of a more historical comment, but I think it's fascinating. There's a fas- fascinating issue that one of the commentaries on Rashi has. Rashi explains that the reason why Abraham is telling them to take a little bit of water is for them to wash their feet. Because they were holchi drachim, they were people who walked on the road, and Avraham thought that they were, well, the word that Rashi uses is Aravian. Sound like a familiar <laughs> word? Well, yeah, but I thought the Arabs didn't exist until... That's Shema. the problem that the commentary on Rashi has. Okay. Right? The problem that the commentary on Rashi has is how could it be that Avraham thought they were Arabs if Arabs, Arabs don't didn't. exist until later in history? So his answer, it's I don't like, remember, I think it might be the Mizrahi. What like an Aaron? Uh, yeah, uh, it's called an anachronism. Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, so his answer is that Rashi's just giving you a, a, a kind of a mashal. Avram thought that they were like the Arab people, who exist later in time, who worship the dust of their feet. That's the end of that sentence. But the Arab people don't actually worship the dust so, of their feet. I thought they're they're very monotheistic. They're very monotheistic. And by the way, this is I I believe the interpretation of Rashi is that there exist existed nomadic people that we would think of as Arabs, even though they may not be the Arabs that you and I are familiar with In terms today. Of their religion, but their religion they, looks right, very different. Right. Well, first of all, Arab is not a religion. Right. Right. right? Yes. Arab is a uh, a um, uh, race. Okay. Right? Um, okay. It's not a, not really a religion. You could have a Christian Arab. You could have a Jewish Arab. Right? And you could have a Muslim Arab. Any of those would be, would be possible. But there existed nomadic people that are similar to what we think of as Arabs perhaps today. Right. Or maybe actually today we would think of them more like Bedouins right. than, than Arabs. And that's the Aravim that he's referring to. Because Aravim, Arav is from the word Ma'ara, really just means that they're from a particular part of the world. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, but okay. So they're Westerners? Well, it depends relative to what. Okay. Relative to Mesopotamia, yes. Got it. Okay. Um, but I want to talk about this a little bit. Okay. Um, so Avraham gives them something to wash their feet with because he thought that they worshipped the dust of their feet. Okay. Why would they worship the dust of their feet? Are you asking me? Yeah. Well, I heard in a share oh. last week from Rabbi Fischl Schachter um, that sometimes people... You know, the dust of their feet could kind of be um, a metaphor for, like, your own actions. Like, you can worship, you know, the stock you invested in or, like, that's what's going to get you what you need in life. Or you can worship where you go, where you where you're schooling. 
And the dust of your feet represents that, like your own right. actions, like that kochi v'otsem yadi kind of. Right. So I, I definitely... you were going in a different direction. No, no, I kind of was going in that direction. Um, okay. Um, this is not an endorsement of reading this particular book series. But <laughs> if you read the Game of Thrones series, okay. right, you will see, and he does, George Martin does a very good job of this, basically how the nature of idol worship and pagan worship is that we take, or they took, the things that were part of their everyday lives and turned them into gods. Okay. So, for example, in his world, people who are mariners who live in the sea will have a salt god, the, the god of the sea, of the salty water, the, right? I feel like the Greeks kind of did that, no? To a certain degree, the Greeks did that, absolutely, right? So when it says that they would worship the dust of their feet, what it means is they would take, they were travelers. So what was with them every day, like what was part of their everyday life? The dirt of the road. So they would turn that into the focus of their worship. And part of the nature of pagan worship and of Avodizara in, in particular, and with this we can kind of tie back to what we were discussing before, is this idea of being stuck in the immediate, right? So let's go back to a question that I avoided a couple weeks ago, but we'll talk about it now and we'll probably close with this idea. Abraham is the first monotheist. Okay. What is the significant difference between monotheism and polytheism? Now, the simple answer to that is monotheism believes in one God, and polytheism believes in multiple gods, right? Right. But it's not just that. The question of one versus multiple is not really the issue. Here is the issue. To the polytheist, why is there thunder? Because there is a thunder god. Why is there lightning? Because there's a lightning god. To the monotheist, they all come from the same source. And here's why that makes a difference. Because if you're looking for a singular source for things, you're not satisfied with simple answers to your questions. Right? So, for example, the polytheist will never come up with the idea that oh, actually, lightning and thunder are really the same thing. One is just a visual aspect of it, and the other is an auditory aspect of it. Because they're not looking Because thunder. as soon as they see lightning, they think lightning god. As soon as they hear thunder, they think thunder god. We've answered the question already. Right? right? Which is fascinating, because if you look at the history of science, a unified theory of science never existed until there was a sense of monotheism in the world. Oh. So, for example, in ancient China, they were extremely advanced technologically. They developed gunpowder, fireworks, print uh, paper, ink, far earlier than the Western world, right? But they never developed a philosophy, a unified philosophy of science. Wow. Right? Why? Because so they were polytheists. And therefore, they were satisfied with simple answers to their questions and we're never asking more and more deep and complete and complex questions right so part of what it means to be a child of Abraham and this is really what we train our children to do on the night of the Seder 
part of what it means to be a child of Abraham is to continue to ask those questions, not to be satisfied with simple answers to our questions until we find the one underlying source that answers it all. Wow. Right? So that's this idea of the, the whole, those who were wanderers in the desert would worship whatever they found because they just took whatever it was that was there on the surface in their lives and turned that into the, right. They turned that into their item of worship. And by the way, it's a much easier way of living. Someone actually complained to me this week. They said, it's so hard to relate to God as an intangible being. Right. And the truth is they're right. 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 We have a very hard time relating to the intangible. Which is why... It goes to, like, my... What I said about how, like, fantasy books and movies don't appeal to me because I don't know the rules. Okay, sure. It's that That's one idea. reason. It's That's like, one reason why... I don't really... Sure. Like, what, what is God? I mean, Baruch Hashem, I feel like I'm okay, I'm okay <laughs> there, but that idea of, like, we don't right. have a rule to explain what God is. Right. So, and, and, and the truth is, this is why religions around the world come up with physical things that they focus on, right? It's much easier, for example, to think of God as, you know, the mother figure, right? right? Or the child figure, right? right? Or the father figure, than to understand him as an abstract being. And the truth is, mm-hmm. without getting too much into this, there is such an idea in Judaism as well. Right. So, for example, there's a very famous disagreement between the Rambam, Maimonides, and the Rivid, one of the commentaries on mm-hmm. the Rambam's great work, Yara Chazaka, about whether a person who believes that the Midrash is literal when it dis- describes, for example, the hand of God or the eye of God, whether such a person is an apikores, whether such a person is a heretic. Rambam is of the opinion, yes. Rivet is of the opinion, no. Well, not our discussion. said that Rambam is very literal. Not literal. Rational. Rational, rational and literal not, are yeah, not necessarily right, right, the right. same thing. Rambam was actually a, the quintessential philosopher, which is, of course, why he believes you cannot give any physical form to God because he was able to understand philosophically what these concepts meant. And this is really what the Rivet says. The Rivet says, listen, Rambam, there were many people before you who are great people who just didn't have that same philosophical view of the world. So they understood things in a different way. That doesn't make them heretics. It just makes them a little simpler than you. Don't call them a heretic, which is essentially what the Rivet says, right? But um, the Piazetsna Rebbe in a small little pamphlet that he put out um, called, oh, no, I can't remember what it's called. It's not Chovas Midim. It's, it's, uh, B'nei Chaburatova. In B'nei Chaburatova, he explains that really the fundamental difference of opinion between the Rambam and the Rivet is, can we begin our journey in relating to God with sort of some sort of a physical idea or concept? And that the Rivet is of the opinion that you can at least begin that way, and he says, we paskin that way. Right? That at least initially, until a person has developed some sort of mature understanding of God, they can relate to God as 
not understanding that he is not a physical being. He's not saying you can relate to God as a physical being, but with some sort of a physical representation so that it be, it's easier for the person to relate to them. With the understanding, and he, he stresses this, that you're trying to grow out of that. So, all of this to say, us as children of Avraham, we have two responsibilities, right? If we take everything we've talked about for the last almost hour or so, right? You wanted it a little longer. <laughs> we have two responsibilities. Number one, we are b'nei chesed, which means it's our responsibility to not only see the pain in others and ameliorate that pain, take away that pain, but also to desire to give, to gift, to give life, to make the world grow. And we're partners with God in that sense. And number two, we are children of the first monotheists, the first monotheist, Abraham, which means that it's our responsibility to continue to ask questions and not to be satisfied with simple answers to those questions, but to keep on asking and to keep on asking until we can find deeper and deeper and deeper answers wow. Wow. to those questions. And we're not going to explain how. This is a whole nother discussion. Those two are actually linked. You cannot leave off there. <laughs> we're going to have to stop there. Um, I know that's a little bit of a cliffhanger, but it's it's far too special episode. <laughs> it's far week. it's far too complex a discussion for right now. Okay. Um, but that is our mission here in this world as children yeah. of Abraham wow. Avinu. All right. Thanks for joining us.